Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Well, good morning. So last week we started this series, uh, Being Unoffendable, and I sort of presented a framework that has been helpful to me is when we use a phrase like that, it's, it's not a common word that we use. And so I needed a bit of a framework for myself to know what is it that we're saying? What is it that we're not saying? So I wanted to bring that back this week and start right there. So when we talk about being unoffendable, what is it that, first of all, that we're not saying? Well, I don't think we're saying that there, there aren't offensive things in the world, so just get over it. In fact, the truth is, is that we live in a very offensive world. And so that, that's just the reality of our existence. We're also, second of all, not saying that it's advisable to sort of ignore, pretend that we don't experience real frustration or even anger or hurt because of offense. That's reality. And we're also not saying that, that somehow if we could just become more spiritual or more mature as believers, that somehow through that, we will eventually become immune to offense. I don't believe that that is ever true. So what does it mean? I think it means that we commit to take on the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ, that we're willing to bear the burden of offense. We see him doing that all throughout the Gospels. It also means that we commit to trust the sovereignty of God. No matter how out of control or crazy or offensive things look to us, it's, it's okay. I can trust in the sovereignty of God. I don't have to get offended on my own. I don't have to get offended for God and angry. I can rest in his sovereignty. It also means my hope for all of us is that we might be able to experience the tangible blessings of what it means to be unoffendable. There's a blessing there, a blessing of, of peace and stability in our emotions and in our relationships with others and even greater intimacy with God. So today we're going to look at a very difficult command from Jesus, but as we take a step back, let's sort of ask the question, why is it that we get offended? Now we could list a hundred things here this morning, but, but I asked myself that question, and what I want to do is to give you a couple of reasons, just two, two reasons that, that we often get offended. First of all, we often get offended because we want to be right. Now, this is the trap that I often fall into, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with a desire to, to be right. I believe that there is truth. I believe, in fact, that there is absolute truth, and my desire is to be in the right. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a, a place where that can go to in my life, I know for sure, where it, it, it really is more than just, I want to I wanna be in the right because of God. It's more of, I want to be right against you or against that opinion or against that person, and then it shifts over to something that's really all about me. So a desire to be right. Then there's a second desire I want to mention, and that is the desire to be safe. We hear a lot about this one uh, in our culture today. And again, there's nothing wrong with the desire to be safe, right? We want to be safe. And when we hear 
someone uh, talking about things or, or saying something or doing something certainly that, that sort of threatens what we believe or what we know to be good or right or certainly uh, challenges someone that we love. Boy, that, that desire to be safe just flares up within us and we get very frustrated and even offended. Now, there's a great tension in this desire to be safe and our desire to follow Jesus. I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but following Jesus Christ actually is not a safe thing to do in our culture. And so our desire to be safe is going to be in conflict when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. He's going to ask us to do some things that don't feel safe. And so these things are in conflict. In fact, Jesus wants us not to pursue safety. It's not that he's not there and he wants us to be safe, but he wants us to pursue strength in him rather than lay back in safety. So in 2008, a New York City mother by the name of Lenore Skenazy dropped off her nine-year-old son Izzy in, in mid-Manhattan in Bloomingdale's. She was setting up a parenting experiment with her nine-year-old son. She gave him a metro card, she gave him a subway and a bus map, and she gave him a $20 bill, and she gave him some quarters just in case she said, in case you get lost and you can call me. There were these things called pay phones. For those of you who don't know, you put quarters in and you would call. So there's no cell phone. So she drops him off in Bloomingdale's, and she says, all right, son, there was the ladies' handbag section. She said, all right, we've talked about this. I believe in you. I know that you can do this. Now you're going to go find your way home. I'll see you when you get home. Now, she didn't come with, up with this all of a sudden. In fact, her, her son, from the age of six years old, kept pestering his mother uh, year after year. Please, Mom, I, I want to I grow up. I want to take responsibility. I'm sure I can ride the subway by myself. I'm sure I can find my way home. And year after year, she said, no, no, no. Except when he turned nine. And she said, you know what? I think you're ready. Lenore happened to be uh, a columnist at the New York Sun, and so 45 minutes later after this experiment, he walked in the door, and he was safe, and he was perfectly fine, and she said, you know, I'm going to write about this experience. Well, you could imagine some of the feedback that Lenore got, right? So about half of the respondents cheered her on cheered on her parenting and said, that's a great job, good job. You're giving uh, some, some responsibility. You're helping your son grow up and learn how to do things on his own. Good job. And they clapped her on. But then there was the other half of the respondents who really despised this woman. She was called by many of them the worst mother in the world. And not only that, but some of those who didn't take kindly to this experiment, also wanted the authorities to charge her with negligence. So she learned some things along the way as, as a parent. Now, whether or not you're, uh, you feel like that's a safe thing to do, that's a good parenting experiment, that's a bad parenting experiment is not really the point. What I really appreciated about it was her response after receiving all this criticism. And she sort of summed up her parenting philosophy, which by the way, where I was raised, I'm more on the cheering on on this side of the equation. But here's how she summarized this idea and this parenting philosophy. She said, as a parent, I believe in preparing the child for the road, not trying to prepare the road 
for the child. I want you to reconsider today God's heart and desire as a parent of his children. Is this life about God preparing the road for us as his children? Or is it about preparing his children for the road? Maybe the moments that we are most offended, and by the way, the people who most offend us, maybe those are some of the best opportunities for us to grow in the love and the truth and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I believe that that is absolutely true. So we come to Jesus' command in Luke chapter 6, and here we have a command that challenges our desire for being right and being safe, and it calls us to something higher, a higher value where he says, I want you to love your enemies. Now, there's nothing safe about that command at face value. And one thing that I know to be true in my own life is that if I try to love my enemies while holding on to my desire to be right and to be safe, there's no way I'm going to be able to fulfill this command. It is, in fact, impossible. For Jesus' audience in that day, for his Jewish audience, this command seemed not only impossible, but it also seemed irrational. Because what you had in, in Jewish culture of the day was that a disdain for your enemies, and specifically Gentiles, was not only not considered a bad thing, it was always usually considered a sign of spiritual maturity. God, I thank you that I am not like these poor saps, these Gentiles who hate the things of God. And so there was this built-in sort of disdain for enemies. So when they hear this command, they say, not only is that a stupid command, it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. I think in our culture today, increasingly as a secular culture, this command also is irrational. We don't even, when we, we use the, the same words, we're not, we don't even mean the same things. Love your enemies. I mean, take that word love. Just as an example. When we use the word love today, we are so, such in different camps, and not just uh, you and I, you know, I think differently from people on the outside who don't have a biblical perspective, not just that we're in different towns or different uh, states in our way of thinking, but we're in different universes, right? And so this idea of love, to even what it means to love, we don't agree on basic words like that. So today in our culture, love has a different understanding, and primarily it's understood in three ways. First of all, in affection, right? Those feelings of affection and love. We know what that's like, many of us, and so we, we in our culture, connect, and you hear it all the time. Love means affection. It also, in our culture, means affinity. There, there is affinity. There are similarities. There are likenesses. There are things that we agree on, and so if those things exist, then love then can exist. And then also the third is affirmation, and that's a big one today. Love means affirmation. You affirm me as a person, however I describe myself or identify myself or whatever it is that I think or I believe, that if there is affirmation in that, uh, perhaps even both ways, then maybe love can be present. Now, a secular mind then thinks, why would I possibly love people who think, say, and do things that I'm opposed to. I don't have any affection for them. I certainly don't have any affinity uh, for them, and I can't affirm what they think, say, and do. 
But the call to love in the Christian faith rises above all three of those things. We are to love our enemies, no matter our feelings of affection or lack of, no matter our affinity, and without affirmation often in either direction. It's a sacrificial type of love. When we take on the heart of Christ and adopt this definition of love, then being unoffendable means moving from just being reactive from what I am experiencing in my culture and in the people around me, being reactive to becoming actually proactive. To love our enemies means to be proactive toward even the people who offend us the most. And so exercising a proactive love in this sort of way means to will and to work for the best interests of others. Let me say that again. Again, disregard affection, affinity, and all of those sorts of things. Even an enemy, what this kind of proactive love means is that I will wor- will and work for the best of others. Jesus uses this kind of language proactive language in verse 27. He says, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Now this command is clear, but it's also broad. Love my enemies, right? Do good. It's almost overwhelmingly broad. And these words to hate, curse and abuse, all of that takes many different forms. So let me sort of unpack it this way for us this morning so we can look at some clear application. What Jesus goes on to say after this is that he gives us three illustrations of what he's talking about. And he gives us some handles for how we can actually uh, practice this sort of love. So first of all, I would summarize it this way, that what Jesus is saying is do good toward those who insult you. So the first illustration he uses is sort of the backhanded slap on the cheek. Now, in any culture, that's a very offensive thing. But what Jesus is saying is that I don't want you to respond in kind. In other words, don't do instinctively what you want to do to an enemy. When we're insulted, and that person puts themselves in the place of an enemy, and and we're insulted, we're slapped in some sort of way, Maybe not physically, but we're slapped in some sort of way. Our instinct is to say, all right, buddy, it is on, right? You have put yourself in the place of an enemy, and our natural instinct then is to to take up fists and to do what we need to do. Instead, what does Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. Why, Why does Jesus say that? It isn't so that I can prove that I'm morally superior. Well, I'm going to turn the other cheek, you see, because I'm, I'm just better than you are, right? Now, the reason that, that Jesus has his mind here, really, I think, is that by not responding in kind and by offering the other cheek and doing something that is so foreign to our instincts, it can, first of all, reveal the ugliness of the action of our enemy, and it can set the condition for the opportunity, the chance For an enemy, actually, perhaps to become a friend. There is a strong redemptive element in the command of Jesus in this passage. 
And so he says, do the thing that is not natural to you. Take on this sort of spirit because I have a higher goal, a redemptive goal in mind. So in American history, we, we can find that there have been different approaches to dealing with offense and insult. In early American history, we sort of took over from, from European culture. Uh, we adopted the honor culture, right? If you go back, you look at uh, if, if there was insult, you could even take up arms and duel. If you insult me, that means that I am going to have to defend my honor or my family's honor, and I'll even maybe perhaps take up pistols and possibly lose my life. Why? Because you have insulted me to the point where it's, it's even worthwhile, even if I lose my own life. The classic case of this is the duel between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. And the tragedy of that situation, of course, Hamilton was killed, a brilliant mind in early American life. But also, if you read on about Aaron Burr's life and what became of it, his life also was ruined. Nothing good came of this honor culture. So we sort of moved on from that. We realized there were some barbaric elements to that. We moved on to what you might call the dignity culture. And I even remember as a kid hearing remnants of this idea of a dignity culture, that when you're insulted, do you remember, how many of you remember the phrase, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you, right? I remember hearing that. I memorized that as a kid. And so in this dignity culture, it is, oh, you're going to insult me, but I'm going to rise above that. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to pretend, right, that that is not going to be a hurtful thing. And the problem with that is that it's not true. Because words can be very, very painful, and they can wound in ways that a physical broken bone, after it heals, it just goes away. So the dignity culture came on the scene, and, and yet there was a lie to that. Now we, we live in what they call the cancel culture, in an age where some believe that words, or even lack of words, and I haven't quite wrapped my head around all of this yet, but where words or lack of words equals violence. And so because of that, something proactive has to be done. We can't just let it lie, right? So if you think or you say, you believe or you do something offensive, then we're going to be proactive and we will cancel you, we will ruin you, and we will make you disappear like a spider in the corner of our culture. The problem with all of these things is that there's nothing redemptive in these approaches. But what Jesus calls us to do and what he has in mind really transcends all of these things. It's a much better way. It opens the door, even possibly, not always, but possibly down the way for an enemy even to become a friend. But loving our enemies and doing good toward those who insult us, make no mistake, it will exact a price from us. It isn't safe. It costs us something. So moving on here, a second statement we, we could summarize, and that is to do good toward those who accuse you. The second illustration can be a little confusing. Jesus mentioned someone, you know, taking your cloak. He could be referring to theft, but in another passage, Jesus speaks 
uh, sort of the same scenario in regards to legal action. Matthew 5, 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And so one of the most offensive things that you can experience, and I haven't personally been through this, but I know many who have, one of the most offensive things you can experience is to be sued and dragged into court. It can be an excruciating experience. And in it, there's a unique feeling of violation. Because not only is someone saying you've done something wrong, but often in the process of that horrible experience, it's not just, oh, maybe you've done something wrong, but also there's all kinds of bad intentions assigned to us. There, there are all kinds of accusations against us And often it goes way overboard to try to prove the point and win the case. So to accuse someone means to assign blame, to assign responsibility, to assign even intention underneath the act itself. And I think the driving force of cancel culture is sort of to take a thought or a belief or a spoken word or an act, and no matter how it was intended, to assign fault and wrong and even bad intentions underneath it. And what it ends up doing is basically silencing everybody. It's about assigning blame and putting bad intent on us. And and so in that assignment of responsibility, somebody has to pay. And in the time of Jesus, when people lost in court and they didn't have money for the settlement, the courts would allow the debt to be paid in clothing. In fact, the outer garment was the most valuable piece of clothing. But Jesus says, basically, in communicating all of this, I want you to be willing to go further than you're comfortable with. That's the principle here. Take responsibility for your part in any offense, but it's even better to offer more than what might be fair in order to show that we're not resentful or hanging on on our side. Of offense. And this is so very difficult and hard because we're often blamed and assigned motives and intentions that are way, way out of bounds, beyond fair. No matter what our intentions are, the truth is, though, that our words can easily be, be misunderstood and misinterpreted. I've learned as a, as a communicator over the years in public that it is very easy to offend people. Uh, and then when people are offended by something you've said, they jump to all kinds of accusations. Let me give you a sort of a benign illustration. So many years ago, uh, I was preaching a message, and I was uh, talking about a cat that we had had for a couple of months, and, and we'd gotten this cat from my brother who sort of guilted uh, this gift on us and did the most terrible thing that you could do where he went to my children, my little children, and he said, look at the little kitty. Wouldn't you love to take him home? And so we brought him home. The kids named him Peanut, and we made a little bed for him and, and, and a little home for him in the garage. So I was making a point in this message, and I was talking about Peanut, that one day my wife came home, and she gently pulled in uh, to the garage, and somehow he ran across and got nicked a little bit. And so for a day or so, he kind of, you know, he kind of was limping a little bit. But after that, he was up and running again. He was perfectly fine. So I was, I was using this as an illustration. You know, when we get nicked in life, we learn, right? When he heard that engine start up, from there on out, he went running for the hill. So anyway, I thought it was a great point. But then the week later, I get this handwritten letter in 
the mail. And so I opened it up, and it was a handwritten note from a sweet old lady in our church, Virginia, who's 94 years old. And I began to read this letter, and it was pretty shocking. She basically filleted me open. And she said, Pastor, I can't believe that my pastor would, would do that terrible thing to a kitty, that you would have a kitty cat in the garage. Kitty cats belong in the house. They're to sleep in your bed. They're to all this other kind of stuff. And, and just she went on and on, and she accused me of being heartless and cruel and even immoral because, because we kept the cat in the garage. And so I thought, oh, goodness gracious, what am I going to do here with this? And I said, come here, kids. Let's take a picture. So I said, take Peanut in your arms and we'll show, stand where his little bed is and we'll, we'll take a little shot. And then I wrote a handwritten note back and I said, Miss Virginia, I'm so sorry that I offended you. I certainly didn't mean to do that, but I want you to know that Peanut is well-loved and cared for. Just understand that my wife and I come from a farming community and, and we were kind of raised and animals are sort of out there and not in here. And So I, I was trying to explain myself as best I could, but until the day that Miss Virginia died, she sat in the chair out in the congregation and she just glared at me. <laughs> I could not be redeemed. How do you deal with with those things. How do you not get offended back when people misinterpret or even accuse or assign blame to you? Well, I think there's one thing that we can do and one thing that we can ask. One thing that we need to do comes from Matthew 18 is whatever we do, respond in person. Do all you can to meet that person, to talk to that person, to try to, to, to get to their point of view and come to their side and their way of thinking. Meet them personally in the moment. And then as you do that, one thing that you can ask is, what can I do to make this better? What can I do to help bring peace to this situation? Now, sometimes it's maybe a demand or something that you can't meet, and, and you just have to say, I wish I could do that, but I can't. But if at all possible, try to meet them where they're at. Loving enemies means I've got to be willing to go farther then I really want to go to offer peace and reconciliation. And finally, sort of in a summary here, I think Jesus is telling us to do good toward those who try to manipulate you, right? When we take this attitude, when we do good to our enemies, there are going to be times that people will, in this life, take advantage of us. So in this third illustration, Jesus speaks here in verse 30 where he says, give to everyone who begs of you and from one who takes away your goods. So this is beyond the pale. This is being taken advantage of. And yet when we commit to being unoffendable, when we commit to practicing a genuine love of our enemies, we are risking in that moment manipulation and being taken advantage of. Loving our enemies means risk. Jesus doesn't call us to be safe. He calls us to be strong. In him. I really believe there are few abuses we despise more than being manipulated. There's a special kind of anger and resentment that sort of rises up within us when we feel we are being manipulated. It is very, very difficult to deal with. So it's 2024, and we are rapidly approaching another election this year. 
And I genuinely believe that as we talk or think about politics and we sort of look at what's going on in this moment, I think a big part of the anger in our country is that there's really a lot of manipulation at play in our politics today. Really is. And this isn't a a partisan point I'm trying to make here. Every side is playing this sort of game. It's pure, unadulterated, vicious, ugly power politics and using tools of manipulation upon the population. And, you know, as a people, our hope would be that we would have leaders on all sides here who would fight for the common good, who even in their disagreement would be willing to to meet in the middle to, to try and fight for the common good and not try to use things as a way to manipulate for a vote or for a particular policy. My personal opinion, and take it for what you think it's worth, is that we have very few types of leaders who have that type of moral character today. And unfortunately, they are simply a reflection of the people and our culture at large. So I think the challenge for us as God's people is to do our part, to be proactive, to try and bring uh, a, a good spirit, the heart and the mind of Christ, to try to redeem a lot of the ugliness to set a good example. And and for us to be able to do that, we've got to think rightly about what it is that we're seeing. When it comes to politics today, there, there really are a couple of approaches. First of all, I mentioned one, the common good. This is the one I think that we ought to adopt. No matter what party, no matter what the issue, no matter who our candidate is, uh, we ought to adopt the approach of the common good. I'm motivated to vote for this initiative or this judge or this candidate or this party because I think it is going to provide the best opportunity for everyone involved. Now, you may disagree with me. When we talk about an issue, you may say, I think you're nuts. I think you're crazy. I don't think that is the common good, but that's okay. Hopefully, even if we're on different sides of an issue or we vote for somebody different, that's okay. I can trust as a a brother and sister in Christ that you're still motivated because you want the same thing that I want. And that is the best for our country, the common good. Is that still true today? I hope it is. In that way of thinking, I don't need to be offended by those differences. I might think you're misguided, but I'm not offended by that. So there's the common good. A second approach is the common enemy. I am motivated to vote, not necessarily thinking about what might be the better outcome for everyone or thinking about policies or things like that, but I'm motivated to vote because I can't let the other side win because they are the enemy. This is zero-sum kind of thinking, and it poisons the common good. And by the way, throughout history, no matter what culture you're talking about, when this is at the forefront of politics and social movements, nothing good ever follows. We are called even to love our political enemies, even to take on the abuse and manipulation of all of this garbage that we see, to see it for what it is, and to avoid becoming offended and outraged by it and by allowing those kinds of things to motivate us instead of the heart and the mind of Christ. Then 
Only then will we be able to see clearly, to vote wisely, and to be proactive for the common good. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.